my name is Michael Suarez. I'm the director of Rare Book School, and it's my um, high privilege to introduce our speaker this afternoon. Professor Leah Price is the Henry Rutgers Distinguished Professor at Rutgers University. She is the much celebrated author of what we talk about when we talk about books, The History and Future of Reading 2019, which won the Phi Beta Kappa Christian Gauss Award for the outstanding work published in that year of all literary scholarship. She's the author of How to Do Things with Books in Victorian Britain, Princeton 2012, which garnered both the Patton Award and the Cabot Fellowship. And she's the author of the anthology and the rise of the novel, Cambridge University Press 2000, which is my personal favorite. She has also published widely in such publications as the New York Times Book Review, the New York Review of Books, and the London Review of Books, and just for good measure too, yeah, the Paris Review. She is a book history superstar. At Rutgers, Professor Price is the founder and director of the Rutgers Initiative for the Book, which is designed to introduce a diverse group of undergraduate and graduate students to the intersections of media history and book arts. The program offers talks and workshops on the history of print and digital media, along with field trips and studio sessions as well as internships at libraries and at presses. There is also a book arts maker space with facilities for printing and binding and a collection of books on hand for study. Before coming to Rutgers in 2019, Leah Price was professor of English in the English department at Harvard University. In April of this year, she delivered the ASW Rosenbach Lectures at the University of Pennsylvania. I recommend them strongly to you. We are thrilled to have her among our number this evening. Please join me in welcoming. Thank you, Michael, for that very generous introduction. Um, and thank you all for being here and being willing to freeze in this basement on a lovely day. Um, thank you more fundamentally uh, to Michael and Barbara and all of their colleagues for creating this utopian space that has made such a difference to our entire Field. And I will confess, um, since one of you just identified themselves to me as taking baby Des Bib, I will confess that my highest ambition in life is to turn the Rutgers Book Initiative into a baby rare book school, um, but I'm not sure that that isn't something too high to aspire to. Um, so it's, it's really wonderful to be here. Um, 
I'm going to uh, try to sketch out today some ways in which the ongoing pandemic has changed the functions that books fill in American society. And so I'll start fairly simple-mindedly by surveying a range of data about the effect of lockdowns on who read and what they read and when. But because those numbers can't tell us how ideas about reading changed, I'll turn next to more discursive sources to speculate about why the pandemic changed Americans' hopes and fears for long-form reading. What caused actors ranging from legislators to grocery store managers to set books apart, sometimes physically, sometimes conceptually, from other commodities? How did societies that distribute risk inversely with literacy redefine books from a vector to a refuge? Three years ago, books seemed doomed. In the spring of 2020, four out of five non-chain bookstores in this country laid off workers as foot traffic thinned and purchasing power shrunk. The surprise was that the book industry was one of the first industries to rebound. Book sales in the US increased by 8% in the first year of the pandemic and by another 9% in the second. And just to gain a sense of what those figures mean, recall that a book sales had been basically flat for most of the preceding decade. By the end of 2021, unit sales for print books in the US were the highest measured since 2004, which is the date at which BookScan began tracking them. One explanation can be extrapolated from Britain, whose nationwide lockdown had more easily measurable effects than the more piecemeal US landscape. And in Britain, a Nielsen survey found average reading time doubling in the first year of the pandemic. Now, uh, so far, so feel good, but before you stop to gloat, Let's take a minute to compare that with equivalent figures for social media. Yes, book sales and book borrowing increased, but so did the consumption of non-literary, non-long form, and non-printed content. As early as spring of 2020, a third of those who responded to a global survey reported reading or listening to more books, but compare that to 40% of respondents who reported spending more time on messaging apps and social media platforms. And we all know the likelihood of upward exaggeration for one of those and downward exaggeration for the other. When it came to printed books, the most immediate decision facing retailers was where to put them. Should paperback racks be roped off, for example, or should paperbacks join periodicals and toilet paper in the section of big box stores that remained open through shutdowns? And for what it's worth, uh, the first of those strategies is what won out in most Walmarts and some Targets. As for space, so for time. Which books needed to be kept moving? Which books could be shoved to the back of an increasingly crowded supply queue? The U.S. characteristically left those decisions to retailers. And by that, of course, I mean 
a retailer whose name I will try not to pronounce. By April 2020, the country's largest e-commerce company had branded itself a public utility by ostentatiously prioritizing essential goods such as wet wipes, hair dye, and lentils over the well-inventoried, envelope-shaped, shelf-stable commodity that had provided its original proof of concept. European social democracies instead empowered governments to protect books, or at least, and I think this distinction is crucial, to protect bookstores. France hedged its bets by shutting bookstores but discounting book postage and banning all other businesses from selling books, not just online, but even in person. So no drugstores, no big box stores were allowed in France to sell books. Scottish booksellers lobbied successfully for click and collect book sales to be excluded from lockdown. Books fared less well, uh, like many other cultural products, in the harsh lockdowns that characterized Southern Europe. And I'm thinking here particularly of Italy, where the lockdown of spring 2020 slashed total book sales by almost 80%. Now, the explanation for that last st statistic can't simply be uh, the fact, although it's true, that Italians then and now uh, read books electronically, read ebooks at a much lower rate than Americans, because in the US, print sales soared even after storefronts shut down. In fact, by the beginning of 2021, uh, U.S. sales were uh, over 20% higher than a year earlier. And that same uh, nameless e-commerce company, which in January 2020 was selling half of printed books bought in the U.S., as well as obviously almost all of the e-books bought directly by consumers, scrambled throughout the summer to procure enough containers to ship books and enough trucks to pick up the titles that were waiting at the docks. So these numbers would seem to suggest that the factor differentiating the US from Italy was not e-books, but rather e-commerce, and specifically the online purchasing of books for offline reading. You could say that e-reading won out globally, but it wasn't in the form of e-books, much less of e-readers. Rather, the pandemic's most popular format turned out to be the AAX, that is the, the audible file. Abandoned in spring of 2020 as cars idled in driveways, by the end of that year, audiobooks were being bought in great numbers and borrowed in greater. And this is particularly striking for children's books. Um, there's one survey out now uh, suggesting that uh, on the eve of the pandemic in, um, in uh, January of 2020, a third of American parents reported uh, their child listening to audiobooks. Uh, by the end of the first year of lockdown, half of American children were listening to audiobooks, and um, that shift has not gone away. That said, um, I don't want to exaggerate the rate of change here because what's true for other areas of life was also true of books, that is the pandemic exacerbated existing inequalities. 
Late in 2020, a UK survey found that while before the pandemic, 47% of boys and 49% of girls reported enjoying reading, the 2020 lockdown widened that 2% gap to 10%. And you might think of the remark by the novelist Charlotte Young in 1869 that there are so many hours of a girl's life when she must sit still that a book is her natural resource. So you could think of an entire population uh, being subject to the domesticated, feminized regime previously confined to part of that population. Back to uh, the question of children's reading, uh, which some of you were um, discussing with me before this lecture started. As literary preppers who had optimistically stopped up on Camus found ourselves scouring eBay for price-gouged coloring books, print categorized as games, activities, and hobbies sold 25% more in spring of 2020 than in spring of 2019. So here I think we're finding another function of the book rise to visibility, its function as a filler of time, as a pacifier. The divergence among national COVID responses made reading one of the many subjects of a natural experiment. Tina Lupton, Ben Davies, and Johanna Schmidt swiftly combined surveys with eth ethnographic interviewing to compare the experiences of novel reading in Denmark's and the UK's starkly different lockdowns. Um, and in this book, which uh, I, I highly recommend, um, uh, their project took its cue from lockdown readers' return to books that they already owned but had not already read. So their project challenges book historians, and to some extent literary historians, focus on the novelty embedded in one-time events such as publication and purchase. In place of the rereading that usually interests literary theorists, they focus on readings that fulfill what you could think of as an earlier intention to read, or even just an earlier prediction of reading that's expressed positively by buying or borrowing a book, or negatively by not getting around to discarding or winnowing it. The most overdetermined case of what they call material that lies around might just be Ling Ma's severance whose 2017 publication predated the pandemic by just long enough to make it count as a found object waiting to be invested with topicality by locked down readers. And instead of the traditional cover image, I am bearing my soul by showing you my, um, I will not use the name of that company, but my proprietary e-reading device highlights, um, which, contain exactly those passages that you would expect a Victorianist literary critic reading in uh, the reading in 2021 to highlight. 
That is the fact that Ma's protagonist, Candace, whose job coordinating the Asian supply chain of a US publishing house is disrupted by a viral pandemic, departs from a tradition of industry fiction, which from Gissing's New Grub Street onward, equates publishing with editorial. By denying her protagonist a fantasized promotion to the design department, by assigning Candace to novelty Bibles rather than to content possessed of a copyright, let alone a singular human author, and by replacing metaphorical dirty dealings in a Manhattan office, a la Devil Wears Prada, with a trans-Pacific excursion to a factory literally, um, as my highlights say, thick with paper dust, Ma reduces the print book to a zombie whose faux leather cover, ribbon marker, and sheets, and mall lining outlive the relevance of its content. In retrospect, Candace's briskly matter-of-fact reduction of the book business to an infrastructure, to what Matt Kirschenbaum calls bibliologistics, chimed with readers who spent 2020 waiting for newer books whose publication dates were postponed by paper shortages at mills busy producing cardboard for boxes. Only in 2020, likewise, would Candace's observation of book production triggering respiratory diseases in offshore employees in the novel's backstory, even before a virus emerges in the novel's present, become a corrective to the pandemic-era fantasy that reading was clean, safe, or domestic in either sense of that loaded word. The question that Severance thematizes coincides with one of book history's foundational puzzles. What's so special about the book? More specifically, in what contexts, for what purposes, does the anomalousness of the book prove good to think with? When, on the contrary, does the book form a useful case study because it makes visible problems latent in other commodities or other cultural practices or other forms of material culture? If Severance poses that question, so do the retailers and governments whose, locked it, whose lockdown policies that I've just described elaborated what we might term a vernacular theory of the book. In pairing rhetoric about literary value with practices that shunted books to the back of a supply chain, store managers and legislators alike treated print uncannily like essential workers. That is, books and nurses both received lavish, empty praise. Neither received material support. If you buy that analogy, the closest thing to healthcare hero yard signs might be the book's reduction to a theatrical prop. As Zoom users perched our laptops on ubiquitous objects of standard shape but infinitely gradated height, Twitter accounts such as bookcase, bookcase credibility placed spines center stage in their webcam backdrop ratings. As DC, a DC area books by the yard supplier hollowed out hardbacks to replace their pages by styrofoam, reconciling background gravitas with the load-bearing limits of flat-packed particle board shelving. In that same city, as Corina Norik Roland Shaf Tawid point out in the 2020 collection, apologies for the quality of the slide, bookshelves in the age of the COVID-19 pandemic, the former Trump spoke, spokesperson who gave interviews in front of a fabric sheet uh, printed with books was betrayed by a wrinkle. <laughs> These backdrops concretized a more symbolic entanglement of bookishness. Um, I'm thinking of the term 
uh, theorized before the pandemic by Jessica Pressman, with what we were learning to call social distancing. Bookstores pivoted to selling face masks. Higher return costs, higher return per postage cost emblazoned stay home, stay safe, read books, along with other assorted tchotchkes. The lockdowns that carved out time for the practice of long form reading were even kinder to its theory. Yet the same precautions that privatized book consumption also elevated what had been dismissed as solipsistic self-indulgence into a public-spirited placeholder. The unavailability of that virtuous virtuality to the workers who trucked and scanned books made the patchwork lockdowns peculiar to an unequal society condition the safety of those of us who read books on the exposure of those who handled them. In the private sector, uh, I'll just gesture toward uh, the, the strikes uh, sparked by that corporation's withholding of uh, personal protective equipment and uh, hazard pay. Um, and in the public sector, we all know that one set of bookish workers found themselves on the wrong side of that divide um, as uh, some counties in the US uh, retrained librarians as contact tracers, demanded that they provide ad hoc childcare, or reassigned them to staff homeless shelters. By positioning literary taste as the antonym both to manual labor and to service work, and by uh, locating librarians along the miscellaneously feminized service side of that binary, public health messaging rebranded risk allocation as temperamental choice. Where it comes to the reader's own bodily vulnerability, COVID didn't invent the perception of book learning as a bolt hole from the school of hard knocks. But if we shift our focus from being infected to infecting, the book's pro-social role becomes more surprising. Earlier epidemics cast books as fomites. 18th century officials dipped in seawater the Bibles on which shipmasters swore that their cargo had been disinfected. As Isabel Hoffmeyer points out, books were stopped at national borders for textual and material reasons alike. Um, and Hoffmeyer's takeaway, in line with much recent work on the anthropomorphizing of the book, is that quarantining books provided a model for a quarantining persons. Um, you could generalize that point to trace parallel histories of the public library with the institutions of public health, um, both intersecting in the late 19th century, as Gerald Greenberg shows, when librarians begin to cross-check borrowing records with disease registers. In 1894, a few years after an enterprising librarian in Britain invented a book fumigator to gas volumes with sulfuric acid between loans, the British novelist Rhoda Broden warned library users against fiction like her own, uh, which she deemed especially likely to have been thumbed and read by convalescent scarlet fevers and mumps. A few years later, an American scientist researched smallpox transmission 
by asking infected patients to bed down with library books, sticky with filth, before giving the books to lab monkeys as toys, and finally soaking the pages in milk before feeding them to the unfortunate but apparently uninfected monkeys. Long perceived as cleaner than manual labor, reading now looked like an occasion for hand-to-hand -hand contact. The Public Health Amendments Act of 1907 fined British library patrons 40 shillings for borrowing library books while infected with a transmissible disease. Scientists advised librarians um, to place squares of glass, um, I'm quoting here, over the pages while they are being read so as to avoid any soiling by the results of involuntary acts such as sneezing or coughing. And in 1886, another librarian um, recommended uh, what he called uh, sterilizable moisteners uh, that could replace a licked finger uh, for turning the pages. <laughs> Behold the proto wet wipe. Um, another retired librarian uh, in 1890 speculated that life would become safe only when we have boiled our milk, analyzed our water, killed our cats, and foregone or disinfected our books. Now, a historian of science might explain uh, these library reforms by the triumph of germ theory over uh, miasmatic theory. A book historian, in contrast, might explain uh, these fears by as attempts to salvage the class distinctions breached by mid-19th century public libraries that lacked the social exclusivity of earlier um, private uh, social libraries. In the early days of the AIDS epidemic, when a nurse at a New York hospital contacted the local branch library to check out books for HIV-positive readers, the request was refused on safety grounds. Faith in the text continued throughout the pandemic to battle fear of the book. By fall of 2020, even as new studies measured how briefly the virus survives on natural and synthetic leather, paper, and mylar, librarians opened book drops to find uh, charred volumes, um, thanks to people who had the bright idea of um, microwaving, of disinfecting books by uh, microwaving them, RFID uh, tag, and all. Um, one unintended consequence of this history of anxieties about the book as a vector among different readers is the power of the book itself to bear witness to pandemics. In the last century, Paul Duguid pointed out the smell of vinegar on a letter can tell us something about the geopolitics of quarantines that its contents never will. Someday, Purell residues may figure alongside the bookworms that feature in Joshua Calhoun's 2020 plea to expand our notion of which marks on a, paint, on a page count to what Calhoun calls evidence of non-human use and intention. Bracketing biomatter with human markings would open book history to animal studies, echo criticism, and perhaps even epidemiology. Um, that's where the formal part of my talk uh, stops, but I'm going to take a few minutes um, uh, 
because we are uh, all hiding in this room from the ash uh, drifting down the coast from wildfires, um, to think about what the pedagogical version of that ecologically informed book history might look like. Um, and uh, just to uh, mention that uh, because disaster takes many forms, um, some more clearly human-made than others, um, I just want to give a shout out here to the uh, book beetle um, designed by uh, Joseph Beery, uh, which you can see here being used by uh, graduate fellows at the Rutgers Book Initiative to uh, print uh, strike posters on the picket line of our recent uh, industrial action. We were not actually printing, we rigged up a kind of uh, Franken form um, that it turned out to be easier to uh, maneuver this on the picket line by actually rubbing uh, rather than printing. Um, so one form of apocalypse is certainly uh, the budget cut. Um, but uh, more generally, states of emergency have, there has never been a non-emergent moment at the Rutgers Book Initiative, which, um, as Michael generously mentioned, I founded three months before the pandemic. Um, and uh, if anyone here is interested in signing up for our virtual events, um, you can see here a lovely piece of press work uh, by, my, uh, by my students. Please come uh, put down your email. Um, so founded this right before the pandemic. Uh, throughout the spring of 2020, uh, the students in my book history class were working literally at their kitchen tables. Um, most of them were at home. Uh, they mailed another letter, one another letters. They exchanged homemade zines. Um, with the irony, of course, that the books on the history of the correspondence course, which workers in the library in our library were uh, scanning for me to upload to uh, the course website after we went remote, um, described a postal system much more functional than the postal system through which I was sending my students kits and my students were sending around a kind of round robin of their work. Um, the one thing that I was able to see, thanks to remote teaching, that I don't think I would have realized otherwise, was the tremendous variety of both uh, languages, scripts, and devotional traditions that could be glimpsed in the kind of um, environment of my students as they zoomed from their respective homes, because these are kinds of information that usually get edited out when we meet in the classroom. 
So um, Rutgers was remote for uh, over a year. Um, my students were uh, learning remotely, although most of them continued to commute to in-person service jobs. Uh, they returned in the fall of 2021 to a library which had in the interim been flooded by Hurricane Ida. Uh, thanks to uh, zoning decisions gerrymandered to cut the local uh, school system essentially off from the neighboring town which actually has functioning storm drains. Um, I hear that there have been floods here as well. It is an increasingly common problem. Our special collections department swarmed with rubber-booted, hazmat-suited workers installing dehumidifiers until a week later, a second storm knocked out the power. Now, none of us in this room need to be told that the history of books includes their failure to survive, much less their failure to remain discoverable and to find a reader. How to introduce that increasingly visible vulnerability into our teaching feels like a harder question. One model being elaborated by uh, graduate fellows in the book initiative um, involves uh, their really quite brilliant um, idea of restructuring our gateway course around stray books that were left behind in the scramble to pack up our special collections department um, in order to transfer it to commercial storage at Iron Mountain. And I'm just going to show you a few uh, images here of the students in Javiera Barrientos's um, section of the course uh, who are taking wear and tear as a starting point for thinking about the interplay of decay with remaking. So these students bind books, but they also dissect books. And they look at books that have user repairs and think about how to put together those different processes conceptually. So um, one thing that has been hardening to me in this um, litany of disasters about which I'm whining to you is the opportunity to replace high-tech makerspaces by handmade makeshifts and um, make wills and to uh, ratchet up to a higher level of abstraction, what Matthew Kirschenbaum has memorably called a bibliographic habit of mind, rather than any particular set of objects or processes. Like pandemics, climate change rubs our noses into the power imbalances that inhabit the space between texts and books. Logistical breakdown has the side effect of making legible inequalities that lie in something more slippery than on the production end, license to express oneself or access to audiences, and something less easily quantifiable than on the consumption end, more or less ownership of printed matter, or more or less overlap between one's own world and the world represented by its contents. And what I mean by 
that last contrast is just to say, I hope not too polemically, that decolonizing syllabi is not simply a matter of changing a reading list. It's a matter of thinking about a broader range of uses of books and ways of apprehending them. To name those inequalities is one of the tasks most urgently facing our discipline. And um, I would love to hear your ideas about how to go about that. Thank you. Michael, do we have a roving mic, or should people just stand up and make themselves heard? I think if they stand up and make themselves heard. Yes, in the back. question that uh, fortuitously was discussed at a workshop here at UVA a couple of weeks ago organized by Jack Chen um, where um, your colleague uh, Daniel Willingham uh, spoke about the ways in which uh, for many cognitive purposes the, the mental operations involved in reading and the mental operations involved in listening are relatively indistinguishable. Yeah, so clearly, I mean, that's partly a question of how one evaluates the relative claims of product and process. Um, and also, I think, side effects or secondary effects involving multitasking that would not need to be inherent to listening to audiobooks, but that in practice currently are. That is, if you picture a family sitting around uh, the Victrola listening to a book being performed, that is, for some attentional purposes, more similar to the reading of a book than you know, listening to a book at one and a half speed on the treadmill is. But that difference does not inherit in the medium, it inheres in uh, different expectations about what's involved in those different ways of apprehending the text. Um, I will also just say that for myself, uh, as a professional who rarely reads without annotating. I love audiobooks because they force me not to bookmark, not to skip, not to jump around, not to navigate. Exactly. And that's I mean that's the great paradox that late in the 20th century, I think a lot of us uh, predicted that the ebook would be the hyperbook 
this all singing, all dancing, hyperlinking, skipping around, um, frenetic uh, thing. Whereas, in fact, as I said, most books downloaded electronically are audiobooks, and the audiobook is the least interactive format that can be imagined. It's much less interactive than the codex for all the reasons that Peter Stalybrass and others have, have taught us. Yeah. Yes, and or I have not, but Lupton, Davies, and Schmidt um, in reading novels during the COVID-19 pandemic are very good on this. And their findings, both in Britain and I think to a slightly lesser extent in Denmark, are that not so much a particular genre, but the category that we call genre fiction is what, what went out. And definitely the novel was a big beneficiary. And in that sense, what went out during the pandemic and what has come to dominate the audiobook market are very parallel accounts. Yeah. My question was similar and had to do with graphic novels mm. and the impact. Was there an impact on the, the consumption? That is a great question, and I do not know the answer. Um, but this is the one room in which someone else <laughs> might. Um, are there any graphic novel scholars here who can speak to that? I was hoping, Jack. Yeah. No. Just like very briefly, I mean, I don't, I'm not a scholar of graphic novel, I just heard of them. But, um, but the reports, of, the economic budgetary reports that come out on sales of graphic novels has shown that the one growth area is not Marvel or DC, despite the MCU's dominance but really a YA novels. And oh. so it's the big publishers that produce the YA novels. And I think it's, oh gosh, there's some Dogman, I think, is oh. probably the main engine that drives sales in the graphic novel world. And they're fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And they're also great propaganda against book banning. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting distinction between the secondary market and the primary market. I think in that way, um, the book industry resembled a lot of industries where old products were moving more swiftly than new products. And in some ways, you could see that as an extension. What you're saying is an extension of Lupton, Davies, and Schmidt's uh, claim about readers returning to books that were already on their shelves, which I will say again, uh, as a scholar, without wanting to um, make a virtue of necessity, I think probably many of us here found, amidst all the horrors, something liberating about being forced to drill down deeper 
into the corpus of materials that we already had rather than endlessly postponing formulating our argument until we could run to the library and just get that one <laughs> one title more. Um, yeah, Joseph. Yeah, I wonder if you would like to comment on the, the surge in DIY bookmaking mm -hmm. across the world, um, kind of an extension of the zine movement that we saw as book sales were declining before the COVID crisis with um, most specifically the Carson Era movement, yes. which began in Argentina and spread rapidly throughout South America, Europe, and Africa. Um, which is just an amazing grassroots production of books made by people and shared by people. Yes, that, that's, that's a wonderful point. And um, for what it's worth, we've been actually collecting Cartonera productions in the book initiative. And they're, ex as you say, they're extraordinary objects, especially in this context of uh, competition between cardboard production and paper production as objects that very visibly sandwich those two um, forms of, of pulp. Um, I think the, the other body of work that seems to me interesting along the lines of what you're describing is the lockdown library project, which for people here who don't know it, it's, um, uh, it was started in, I think, maybe summer of 2020 by Tracy Hahn in Wisconsin. It's a, um, a, collect a repository of user-contributed printable, printables, so they're PDFs uh, to download, print, and fold. They're zines, um, some of them uh, pandemic-related, some of them non-pandemic-related, um, some of them by quite well-known artists, some of them by not at all well-known people. Um, and the analogs between that kind of project and other sorts of uh, distributed making projects that arose during the pandemic I'm thinking of uh, origami projects, various kinds of crafting projects, various sorts of fiber arts project has been um, really interesting in light of an argument that uh, the anthropologist Shannon Mattern made in, uh, I think, early 2021 um, for the, the paradigmatic genre of the pandemic being the kit. And Mattern points out, you know, meal kits, uh, emergency kits, uh, COVID testing kits, um, all these kinds of assemblages of objects that are both a set of physical things and an implicit prompt to perform one of several operations or operations adjacent to, but slightly distinct from them, um, with zine making maybe being um, in that general ambit. Um, yeah. You mentioned, I think, your, your professional experience during COVID in relying on materials you could access at home for your professional writing. Any thoughts about your, 
your personal reading habits during COVID? Any change? Uh, my answer to that will not be interesting. It is that, um, like some other people here, uh, I had a child uh, at home during the pandemic, so my personal reading habits were dogman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so someone may have a more interesting answer to that, and I would welcome it. Um, yeah. Second question, absolute yes, and in particular the Instagram book club was, as many people know through participant observation, a thing. Uh, first question, I don't have an answer, and um, it's a really interesting question, and if, again, I'll, if anyone in the room has insight, uh, so the question was about illegal uh, book sharing, electronic book sharing, and book distribution, any takers? So that's actually an interesting um, kind of border right. border case, yeah. Yeah, and my bootleg editions. Uh, but uh, well, one of the suggestions I think would be interesting in my eyes because so many ebooks are free for free. So how much of an economic force was ebooks? Was it just like people downloading the ebook? People actually paying downloading. Yeah, so maybe since we're getting toward the end of the question period, let's uh, collect a few questions and address them together. <coughs> yeah, Tyler. Uh, this is not the reading side of it. Has there been any research done on the extent to which there's been more self-publishing or just publishing in general? Um, all the people who took the pandemic as the moment to try to get their novel Taking the moment to write that novel and brewing inside them, 
actually was translated into an increase in production? That's a great question, and I don't know the answer because Mark McGurl's uh, chapter on self-publishing came out just a little bit too soon to take that into account. Um, I hope somebody is taking notes on that and um, the question about illegal book sharing because either of them would really be a great topic for a dissertation. Um, yeah. I, my question picks up on Taylor's a little bit. Um, but I was thinking about, like you said, like the Instagram book club phenomenon and um, also like videos of celebrities reading books out loud, like the obvious one being yeah, Pride and Prejudice from anyway. Um, but I was thinking about how these sort of, to me at least, harken back to 18th century communal reading mm -hmm. practices, like coteries or reading aloud. Um, and I was wondering like how you think we should theorize the success or failure of these um, yeah, the, the like the I don't know, like the trend of these like community practices coming back. Yeah, um no, I mean that's um you are the right person to ask that question as an eighteenth centuryist and I'm probably not the only one here who was struck in John Guillory's recent uh polemic by his insistence on a distinction on over on mapping the distinction between professional and let's call it amateur reading onto a distinction between solitary and communal reading when i think we all know that there's more of a chiasmus and either of those um uh, binaries can be mapped in, in either direction. Um, I mean, the, that scene that you describe of the celebrity reading the book aloud, which in some ways is, could be seen as the obverse of the YouTube read aloud that so many children's librarians um, did for unschooled, uh, for, for children home during the pandemic, in some ways they provide a challenge to the conventions of our own disciplines where the default mode for representing a printed book digital on screen is the page image, you know, the flat page image. Um, and these are much more embodied, three-dimensional, angled, uh, ways of thinking about the book with the hands and sometimes the face of the person reading them in the frame rather than the model that came to be taken for granted with mass digitization projects where the finger of the scanner is present only once a mistake. Please join me in thanking Leah Price.